And so what I figured out was what are the similarities between regular walkers and race walkers? And can we make a product that works for both? Because if you can, now you don't have a niche market anymore. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt Rouse and Jeremy Marcotte. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. I'm your host, Jeremy Marcotte, and I'm here with Matt Rouse. Say hi, Matt. Hello. And today we have Carmen Jakinski here with us from Reshod Walking Shoes. Hi, Carmen. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank can we, you. Can we call you Coach Carmen? Sure. Because that's what everybody else calls you. I, I think so. That, wor that works. That works. Perfect. So, Coach Carmen, who are you and what do you do? Well, I am an athlete and I'm a coach and I'm a business owner. Well, just three things that keep you extremely busy, That's right? right? You know, you have 80 hours in your day, like everybody else. <laughs> so, so let's, let's start with it. You're, you're an athlete. What is the sport that you do? I'm a competitive race walker. Competitive race walking. Awesome. Yeah. So you walk, walk really, really fast, really, really fast for really long distances. Yes. So what is the difference between like, what is it that makes it a walk versus like just not jogging as fast or whatever. Like what's the technical difference between yeah, those there's, things? Um, so race walking is an Olympic sport. Right. It has rules, two rules. The first is you need to land with a straight leg and your knee has to be straightened until your hip passes over the hip. Okay. So it I'm needs like to- trying to picture yeah. how to- Yeah, right. okay. And then the other rule is you need to maintain contact with the ground. And that one's a little more subjective because the judges who- verify whether you're complying with the rule are using their human eye. It's not videotaped. They don't use any cameras. So the really fast walkers can actually hover because the, the human eye can't detect the loss of contact if it's like 1 40th of a second. Hmm. So the really good ones can kind of maintain it or at least give the illusion that they're maintaining contact. People who lift, um, it's pretty obvious because the competitor next to them is taking four steps in the time that they're taking one. So you, you can tell. Right. It's not really complicated, but you'll get power walkers that walk with bent knee. So I just call them all bent knee walkers. It can be a power walker, fitness walker. And then you've got joggers, slow runners, and then you've got your runners. So... We were talking a little bit before we started recording about how there's a kind of a new Olympic, I guess, length of race for women that's coming out. Well, hopefully. Yeah. So, so the men's race walk has been in the Olympics since 1908 or 1904, depending on who you talk to. The two distances for men is 20K and 50K. The women didn't have an event till 1992, I believe. Wow. 1992, they added the 10K. And in 2000, it was increased to 20K. But we've only had one event. And the women wanted a 50K, and they've been petitioning to get that added. Uh, at, at this point, it's been approved by the IAAF, which is the International Amateur Athletic Federation. They've actually just changed their name. But basically, they're the governing body for uh, world athletics, which is world track and field. Mm -hmm. But the IOC has not yet approved it for addition to the Olympic event in Tokyo. And what is IOC? IOC is International Olympic Committee. Oh, okay. So they are the ones in charge of the venue for the Olympic events. And they're, they're the ones who add and, and delete sports, individual sports. Oh, this one won't fit this year. <sighs> I know. So <laughs> so the women are outraged, you know, over, um, but yeah, there's some women who've been working really hard, including me. I wanted to make the, the trial standard for that event. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. can't even 
have an Olympic trials for women until the IOC approves it for addition to the Olympics. So it was a little bit of a disappointment. I trained all year for that, hired a coach uh-huh. and was on track and just, it's not going to happen. So I will race hopefully in uh, Santee in January for the, the women's national 50K, but it won't be an Olympic trials, which was my hope. Wow. So yeah. is this is this done in a stadium or is it no, road? No, it's, it's road and they do it on a loop. Oh, okay. So the loop can't be more than, I believe it's 2,500 meters. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you have judges who move in the opposite direction as the walkers. And so they'll be keeping track of whether you're complying with the rules. And if you're not, they'll show a paddle, just like you might see in soccer, mm-hmm. a yellow or a red paddle. A yellow will tell you whether you've lost of contact or bent knee. And if they give you a red paddle, then you need to leave the course. But what they'll do with the yellow paddles, they're warnings. And so there's a DQ board. If you see your number, it's good to know what your number is before you start the race. (laughs) Don't put your name up there. But yeah, you want to look on the board to see if you have any red cards. If you get three, then the chief judge will come and, and have you leave the course. So you're not allowed to finish. But they also have a pit lane now, which they've added to the sport where you can it's like a penalty box. Mm. So you get a timeout. So you have to sit in the penalty box. So you lose time as your competitors are racing. And so now they, they're kind of changing up the rules so that you can, you hang out there and you still get to finish your, your event, but it's just, you have a, a much How long time. The penalty is like hockey. You're like two, two minutes, minutes in the box. <laughs> no, seriously. High sticking. <laughs> I have never been put in the penalty box, the pit lane. They call it a pit lane. Pit I, lane. I just kind of ignore it because I, I don't usually get warnings. Every once in a while I get a warning, but I, I think I've been disqualified once and it happened back in the nineties. I was chasing someone down the back stretch of a, right. it was a track race and we were at Hayward Field and to me it was worth it. I needed to go after it and I didn't care if I was going to win, I was going to win. If I was going to lose, I, I was going to take the DQ and it turned out I took the DQ and I was fine with that. But, <laughs> but I, I don't get a lot of looks from the judges. So, so. are you the fastest in the U.S. in your sport? No, no, there's women? women a lot faster than All me. Right. Yeah. I'm just the one who makes the shoes. <laughs> so that, that kind of brings us to why you're here today, right? So you've built a business around your passion and your passion is the sport race walking, right? Yes. And you started your business, If correct me if I'm wrong, but you started your business by resoling shoes for people yes. that were doing this sport. Yes. Right? And then you decided, you know what? I, I think I can do this better. So yes. you designed and made and now sell your own shoes. Yes. That's pretty simple, right? But the reason we wanted to bring you in is because you have managed to build a brand by following your passion and mingling and mixing those two things together as seamlessly as possible. And I kind of want to know how you got started in, in, in the race walking to kind of lead us into the rest of the story. Sure. I started race walking in 1986 in San Diego. And the walkers down there were all modifying their shoes, which I found really curious because I came out of gymnastics where equipment is kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. We had four apparatus and everything kind of revolved around that apparatus. But in race walking, there was nothing except the shoes. And when I saw athletes tinkering with their shoes, I got really curious and I started doing that myself. And it was also a time when a lot of the brands were coming out with what they call the, the walking category. And they were asking us race walkers, hey, what do you look for in shoes? So I, I just assumed that brands were really interested. And my thought was, hey, I'm not a good enough athlete 
to be sponsored, but maybe if I went to work for one, help them with the shoes in the walking category, they could help me with my training because my goal was to get to the Olympics. So that's how I got started. So that's been 30, 33 and a half years. And a half year. Yeah. How were they modifying their shoes and why? So the biggest was block heels on running shoes needed to be beveled. And that's what I had my boyfriend at the time. He's now my husband for 33 years, but he would peel back the outsole and he'd cut a wedge and then glue it back on. And back then, a lot of the shoes were still die cut and buff EVAs. They weren't the molded parts that you see now. So they were really easy to modify. Some people uh, took a screw uh, or drill and they drilled holes in the forefoot area of the midsole and created what's now called flex grooves. And other people would and lace. to make it more flexible? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then the last thing I remember seeing is people would actually put a hole in the tip of the toe of the upper and lace their laces in there to pull it back to create more toe spring. So those are the things I remember seeing the and most. And the toe spring is so that they can kind of launch faster Correct. to the next step? Yeah, it just makes it round because walking is a rolling motion and they right. were creating a more rounded sole. And so, and whether they're modifying the heels, like you were saying, they're beveling them are they just like rounding off the edges of the heels that's correct because walkers land differently than runners when they contact their heel to the ground their their toe is much higher angled than you get when you run so when you have a block heel or a flared heel is even worse because a flared heel is, is where the heel extends beyond your heel of the shoe and that's just a really hard sharp point to land on every time you contact the ground and it just puts pressure at the low back. And I had, again, I was an injured gymnast. I'd fallen and injured my back. So I didn't want any of that. I I needed the smoothest rollover I could get on contact. So that beveled heel works. I wish I would have kept those shoes. I only have pictures of them that my husband had done, but that's, that's something I regret. Maybe you could buy some of the old shoes. It was the Nike, yeah, it was the Nike Spiridon. They don't make them anymore, but it was a super lightweight shoe. With I'm sure you could find them on eBay for twenty thousand dollars <laughs> ish, <laughs> give or take ten grand. People are like crazy about collecting shoes. It's like a a thing I'm not really into, but I know a lot of people. Like, I mean, there's. I think I heard someone call themselves a shoepreneur once, and they're like they buy and sell collectible shoes. I guess. I used to work for uh, Gregory Gourdet at Departure. He's the chef down there. And you would go into his house and he had a wall probably 15, 20 feet long, 8 to 10 feet high, just filled with shoes. And he's like, uh, I was once told that if the shoe fits, buy one in every color. And sure enough, he had a lot of shoes. Yeah, it's a thing. And people will go to these, now they have these big shows where you can buy these, you know, these one-ups. And the big thing is, is it really authentic or is it a remake? And that's where people get a little bit, you have to be careful what you're buying. Whether it's really the old shoe, there's ways you can tell. You can tell by the glue lines. You can tell by maybe the colorways, but uh, so yes. if you're going to buy a right. classic pair of Ash, shoes, take a shoe yeah. professional with yes. you. Ask Coach Carbon yeah. to tell you if they're yeah. real yeah. shoes or not. Yeah. <laughs> Consultations are only three hundred dollars, but she'll get you the right there, pair there of you shoes. Go. You know, and it's just about anything collectible. There's, there's someone somewhere knows how to yeah. tell if it's the real yeah. thing. And in some are counterfeits. When I worked for Columbia Sportswear, I was in China. And we were out shopping one day, the group, we'd gone to this mart and there was somebody who was knocking off some product. They, it was a shoe that had Columbia outsole and a Nike upper. 
I remember wow. looking at that and I contacted uh, someone I knew at Nike was a illegal. I said, hey, I didn't know that Nike and Columbia were working together. <laughs> he had them shut down in, <laughs> I think he was working in their, well, their trademark. Well, their infringement. Yeah, the crazy. counterfeiting part. Yeah, he, he found them. I couldn't believe he found them and he had them shut down within days. Somebody I follow online, I can't remember their name off the top of my head. I'll have to try and find it later. They collect toys that are, they call them mixed brand toys. Oh. So it'll be like a G.I. Joe with like a Superman logo on, nice. you know, and stuff like yeah. that where they've just or they'll have a pack of action figures and some of them are like DC superheroes and some of them are Marvel in the same box, right? Even though they're separate companies where they're knocking off both toys at the same right. time. Well, they don't have enough knowledge like base. Batman to, and Iron yeah. Man together in yeah. the same box kind of thing. Yeah. Another country. They just don't know what they're copying. It's just Don't know. Don't care. Yeah. Whatever. They made a dollar. That's right. As long as somebody's going to buy it. Well, I mean, that's what they think. I mean, if it works, it works, right? Uh, you used to be able be to buy two-for-one DVDs. and brand for themselves and manufacturing that, but that's an aside. And now, a quick break. Digital Marketing Masters will be right back. Are you ready to stop grinding and start making an impact? Are you tired of working long hours and not growing your business? Get Matt's new book, Flattening the Hamster Wheel, on Amazon now. Just go to hook2.us slash hamster. That's H-O-O-K-T-O dot U-S forward slash H-A-M-S-T-E-R. So building a brand, building, building the shoes, coming up with the new design and stuff like that. So you sell a very specific shoe right. and it's built for race walking, right? It's built for walking. It's built for so walking. So here's what I learned when I, when I worked at Nike in the 90s, early 90s, I worked in marketing and I, I brought up the idea of a race walk shoe. And they said, no, you know, it's a niche market. We just can't make any money off of it. It's just, we need bigger numbers. What I discovered was that it was semantics. When you talk to race walkers, they will be very specific about what they want. And, but they're parroting what their coaches tell them. They say low heel, low profile, flexible forefoot, ankle collar needs to be low. They'll be very specific. But then when you talk to regular walkers who don't care, I mean, they're just out there walking. They don't know what they want. They just say comfort. And so what what happens is the people who go out and talk to walkers have to take that information back so they can tell their developers, hey, here's what the race walkers want and here's what the recreational walkers want. And it looks like they want two very different things. What I discovered was they don't. They just don't know how to verbalize it. And so what I figured out was what are the similarities between regular walkers and race walkers? And can we make a product that works for both? Because if you can... Now you don't have a niche market anymore. Now you have a, something that works for people. They don't know why, but they just, they get it. And then you have the race walkers who are happy because now they have product. And that's what Reshot has done. When I put these shoes on walkers who are just coming to a trade show or a women's event, they don't know what they're looking for. They just put them on. They say, I just want a comfortable shoe. And they put them on. It's like, wow, these work really great. But they can't explain why. I can. But that tells me that I, I did it right. Right. And are you constantly revamping your shoes to try to make them more competitive on the race walking side? Or do you pretty much have that down now? And now I have that part. Yeah. So I have that part and I've patented it. Mm -hmm. So the things I'm refining now is making them for widths, um, just figuring out some of the things that are little issues and they're mostly fit issues. But my the thing that makes my shoes different than the running shoes that you see mostly on the market is that my shoes are made completely of angled foam components. 
And angled foam components in the midsole gives a smoother ride for heel-toe walking, which is what walkers do. So a runner has vertical lift. A runner has vertical and horizontal movement, actually, but walkers just have horizontal movement. And so we are on our foot the entire phase of the gait. And that's really different than what runners experience. And so I need to have the support under the arch. It has to be very different than what a running shoe has. And so the angle foam components that I've come up with, the two patents, really service both of those categories. And again, I can refine it with changing out the, the outsole or the upper, you know, features on the upper. Wow. Okay. So, so with this whole thing, when did you actually start reselling shoes? Was that back in the 80 and 86 too? I started with a shoe repair. Oh, you're going to love this. DK Camp of Next Adventure. I don't know if you know Deacon Brian of Next Adventure. I don't, but... They're a local outdoor Portland homegrown business right on uh, MLK Grand. Oh, they're on Grand. And he owned Busy Shoes downtown. He had several stores, but Deke owned the one on Pioneer Square right off there by the Wells Fargo. And I was a legal assistant back then. And so I would take my shoes into him and he would carve off the midsole and outsole and he'd put my little configurations on there. And I'd, I'd go to work, he'd work on it. I'd pick it up on my way home before I caught the bus. And that was 1996. So he started Next Adventure in 1997. So I worked with him for about a year to get the right configurations. And he just charged me, you know, what a shoe repair would do. Cause I couldn't find a brand who w- was interested. And so once I did that, I filed my second patent and I started just making them that way for myself. And then athletes saw them and they wanted them. So athletes I started coaching wondered what that was and whether I could do it for them. And so in order to do that, I had to start a business. I had to have a website. So now people are contacting me from other states and other countries, and I had to figure out how do I do that. So with people in other countries, I would just have them order a style that they knew. Like, let's say they wore, you know, the New Balance style and Zappos might be closing out that style. And they knew that it fit them. They knew what size they had. So somebody in another country would just order that from the U.S. Zappos, have free shipping sent to me. I'd resold it and send it back to them. So the first time they'd see the shoe is after it had been resold. And that just made it economically feasible. Otherwise, people were paying to send their shoes to me. I would resole them and then I'd send them back to them. And they'd have to get them shipped to themselves in the first place. So Yeah, but so, I had people who ordered five, six, seven pair of those. I have people who have ordered quite a few and liked them. I had a doctor in Minnesota who ordered them for his sandals and his dress shoes. And then I had a golfer, a professional golfer contacted me and said, hey, you know, I'd kind of like to try this for golf. And I said, well, I don't think it's going to work because it's going to pitch you forward. The shoe's designed to take you forward fast. And she said, well, I'd like to try it. So she sends me her golf shoes and I carved them off. You know, whoever I was working with at the time carved them off and put on the new midsole. And she says, yep, you're right. It does. And I said, but hold on a second. Let me rethink this. Let me figure out how to give you what you're looking for, but have it a little slower. So I created the first shoe that came out was created for her. And she played a tournament in it. I think she said she won her tournament. So she was a pro golfer out in Ohio. And the thing about walkers is they do, most of what they do is walk. They walk from hole to hole. They just do a little bit of hitting. So if you can create a shoe that doesn't impede their swing and then they're comfortable walking, it's a win-win, right? So I created this shoe for her and she loves it. The problem is it's red. (laughs) 
<laughs> and golfers don't wear red shoes around the golf course. Plus, it's not waterproof. So we're going to work through that. And now I have different outsoles I can use. So I'm going to get back to that. But um, in my experience, serious golfers will take any advantage that they can get, even the slightest. If you have a tee you can put in the ground that is slightly differently shaped that makes the ball go half a foot farther, nice. I'll take it. All righty. I'll have to find Anything. those golfers. I'm also a terrible golfer. I should mention that. <laughs> we am not hey. by in any means an expert. We won barely... last place in our charity tournament. So. That's true. We, we took last place in the Hillsborough Chamber Golf Tournament. And we won back almost as many balls as we lost. Sweet. We do all right swinging <laughs> at top golf sometimes. Though. Broke so 100. You, uh, Coach Carmen, you built a community on what you do, mm -hmm. right? So it started with word of mouth, just from the yeah. people that you were coaching and everything like that. But now you've got an, a community that's worldwide yeah. that is actually looking for your product and your thing. How did you cultivate that? How did you start to build that? Or did it just kind of happen? It really happened organically. It wasn't intentional because I'm a busy athlete and I'm coaching here locally. It just kept it simple to talk to people locally because then I didn't have to deal with a lot of shipping. But I, I hired this awesome web guy and he was working with my, uh, did some SEO for me and <laughs> can't think of his name. Was it Matt? Was it Jeremy? Maybe. Yeah. One of those guys. <laughs> One of them's super handsome and the other guy's Matt. And there um, you go. So, you know. Yeah. So you were kind of an accidental entrepreneur and that yeah. kind of seems to happen a lot in, I mean, just in the startup world. A lot of times people are, especially actually in our industry, it happens really common. So somebody's like, I know how to build a website and somebody pays them to do it and they go, oh, I could make money doing this. And then they make some more and then they get busy and they got to hire somebody to help them. And then next thing you know, they have an agency. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so it's kind of the same thing. So you were like, oh, you're just modifying the shoes for yourself. And then it was your friends. And then now people are paying you to do it. And then you got to get to the point where you design and manufacture your own shoe, right? Yeah, it was a really complicated process. Why don't you talk about how you made the jump from modifying other people's shoes to actually making your own shoe? Well, at some point you you start moving down a road too far to turn around and come back. And for me, I'd, I'd filed patents. And my husband says, we are not going to invest in all these patents and you not sell your shoe. So he was adamant that I would finish this darn thing because it was just too hard. It really was. If I'd known ahead of time how much work it would be, I probably would have turned around early on. But at some point I had to leave the legal field and learn footwear because brands just weren't interested. So I got a job at Columbia Sportswear and had a wonderful three years there. I worked in their footwear merchandising. I did special makes and learned a lot there. Met some wonderful people. And Special uh, makes is like custom designing shoes for people. Yeah, it's mo mostly just color-ups. Colors, yeah. So if a big retailer who bought Columbia product wanted right. a special color that they wanted just to do for their store, they would do that. So I would take the orders, figure out the minimums, tell them how much it would cost, and do right. all that. Handle the process. Yeah. And then a year later, I moved into footwear development, and I was uh, the fit and wear test coordinator for three brands. So Columbia had acquired Montreal. So I was working with Montreal, Sorel, and the Columbia brand and did the fit testing for them. They set up the protocol. It was a new, kind of a new area that they were doing. They were kind of consolidating some of the duties into a fit and wear section. And that's what I did for two years. So then you have all, you have all your patents, you have the experience, you already have customers. Mm -hmm. And then how do you go from that to having 
boxes show up with your shoes in them? Well, in 08, you know, the recession of 08 hit and Columbia had voluntary layoffs. And they said, hey, if you want to volunteer for a layoff, we'll give you a better package. And I thought, you know, now might be a good time to start my brand. And I'd learned about lasts and pattern engineering and fit. And the one thing I knew about uppers is they're very complicated. What's a last? The last is the foot shape form that shoes are, are made on. Okay. And it's very so that's a piece important. of equipment. It's the most important piece. It's okay. the last is what you start with first. The you do the last shoe, first? You do the last <laughs> first. And it has to be accurate. You have to have a good last engineer to create your last or your shoes just not going to fit or it won't work. And both of those are unfortunate pieces of information you find out late in the manufacturing process when it's kind of too right. late to turn so around. So after it's manufactured, you find out it doesn't fit. Yeah, you'll get a few rounds, but if your last is wrong, you it's really difficult to adjust the last to make it right. You almost have to start over. And that's the hardest part of it. So when I started Reshod, I started resoling. I let people send me shoes that already fit because I didn't need to know if I can build an upper. I could hire somebody to do that, and I did. But I needed to know if my midsole worked. I needed to know if people loved this as much as I did, and and they did. So I was able to put it on a shoe that I could eliminate one big variable, so like the upper doesn't fit. So they sent me something that already did. I, I put mine on there, and then they could tell me, for starts, I got to see what brands they were wearing. So I could do some market research. The second thing is I was cutting into those shoes. So now I got to see, well, what are these brands putting in these shoes that these walkers seem to like enough to go out and buy? And the third thing I was able to see was the design lines. How does my shoe look with this upper that somebody created? Does it look good? Do I like this? Do I not like this? I actually started to learn that there were components of the upper that actually enhanced the midsole use. I didn't think that at first. I just thought an upper's an upper, right? It either fits or doesn't fit. But there are actually some components that actually lend itself to the walking gait. So I learned some of those. So is that like how they're laced or the yes. height of the yes. of the top of the shoe at the yes. upper, right? Yeah. Yeah, the heel heights, the vamp, which is the part on the top of the shoe where they're laced. Okay. There's a lot of technical terms for shoes. Yeah, and yeah. Shoes are amazingly yeah, complicated yeah. for such a common thing, right? Yeah, like everybody's yeah. got a pair of shoes on their feet. And, yeah. then. and people don't appreciate how difficult it is to create something that will fit the general public. But then I also got to test the outsoles. And that was a piece I hadn't figured out yet was what outsole am I going to use? What's going to give me the best traction? Rubber lasts a long time, but is pretty heavy. And then it, it kind of didn't give me the right balance of weight. Some of them didn't. So I needed to look at that and probably a couple other things, but mostly did they like it? Did it work? Did they want more? And, you know, people love, love, loved them. Some of them didn't, but the people who loved them kept buying more and more. So I knew I had some sort of a market, but if it was for the first time is people were telling me, yeah, Carmen, you're doing it right. Because I had been beaten up for years hearing from shoe companies about how this wasn't going to work. And, and just all the negative stuff had really kind of beaten me down. And so now I'm talking to people who are going, yes, thank you for thinking of us. Thank you for stepping out and making walking product because we want stuff for us. And I started getting... <laughs> and some good validation too, to was, say, yeah, you know, you were right. Because... I mean, you had mentioned that brands, that you had approached brands, but you mean that you were approaching brands to have them make the shoe yeah, I based on to your 30, patents? I or. probably have 30 or 40 different brands that have turned down my shoe. And to be fair, I've turned down a few 
of myself. But it was just a long process of trying to find a place to fit. And I, and I didn't. I didn't fit in any of the brands. And I waited. And sometimes people, new people would cycle through. And I think I'd try it again. And, and I just never did. And, you know, at some point, you have to figure out, like, well, who are you loyal to? I, I was loyal to walking. And I, I knew that our sport needed a piece of equipment that was unique. And if they didn't get it, the, the, our sport's not going to grow. And there were plenty of pe- people in our sport that want to see our our sport grow. And it really needs something unique. When you go to a shoe store and you look on a shelf of shoes, you know what a golf shoe is. You know what a basketball shoe is. You know what a ballet slipper is just by looking at it. But you don't know what a walking shoe is. It kind of looks like a running shoe. It kind of looks like sometimes a nurse's shoe. I mean, sometimes they're ugly, they're leather. I mean, sometimes they're clunky. But I just think that we need something that's unique and different. And so this angled foam kind of stuck with me. I came up with the slogan, a new slant on walking. And I put some uh, rebounding foam in the toe and it gives you a good kick. And I I've think worn it's them. They're fantastic. Well, they, thank you. They have a good spring to them. You put a put some in spring in your step. There you and go. The blue matches my Not eyes. Not in the drinking way. So it's there great. You <laughs> um, so you, you've done this, you've got a passion. And the biggest thing that I took away from all of this is just don't give up. Because you heard no, you said it yourself. You had 30 companies that you either approached or that approached you that it just wasn't a good fit. And you can't always just take the first offer that comes along. Right. You have to again, find to your passion. Right. It has to be right. Yeah. Well, and you don't always know when it's going to happen. And for me, I kept thinking it was just right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And you just <laughs> you keep looking. It's like, okay, it's going to come soon. And it doesn't. It was going to come soon. And it doesn't. And you just keep, you keep going. And again, you get so far that you can't turn around. You just, you have to keep going. And that's kind of where I found myself. They say entrepreneurship is a lifetime of saying, I just got to get through this week over and over and over. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> And I do a lot of walking so I can walk off my frustration. And it's a great way to test shoes. And that's really what kind of kept me through the really dark, lonely times was that I just had product to test. And so it's like, I don't know if I'll be a race walker much longer, but hey, I got these shoes. I'll go walk these out. And many times I just said, you know, I'm going to get to this point. I'm going to stop and I'm going to quit. And by the time I got to that point, something had broken. Every year I would go to the footwear material show down at the Oregon Convention Center. They have twice a year, every six months. And I'd go down there and and always be inspired. But the first times I would go down there, nobody would talk to me. So there are booths of all these vendors who are from China or Vietnam or somewhere in Asia. And they'd give you these badges, right? And everybody would have badges that had big brands. And they'd walk around in groups, right? And it's like, there's their Nike group and there's your Adidas group. And they'd go from packs. And you'd see them walk up to a table and they'd be smiling and, you know, give them some things from under the table. And then I would walk up and my thing said owner or inventor or something really, really non-impressive. And they, you could just see their their whole demeanor, their face would just fall. And they'd ask me questions like, well, how many shoes do you sell a year? It's like, like, none. I'm just trying to get started. And, you know, we can't help you. And nobody would give me samples. And it was just so discouraging to go around. But I'd go every six months. I'd go to that show because I never knew who I'd see. And I'd, somebody would give me something. I'd always go back on the second day when they were shutting down the booths and people had samples they didn't want to take home. So I'd kind of glean wherever I could. And that is where I got my materials. So when I went to Deke, I'd have like this sheet of green and a sheet of blue and a purple and stuff that totally didn't match, but it had the right densities that I wanted to try. So I had these goofy, ugly 
disgusting looking messes, Frankenstein looking things. And so, you know, I tried to go to a shoe brand and say, hey, you should try this. And they'd look at it and go, are you kidding me? You know, but, but that's all I had. So that's, that's how I got started was just going to these shows and meeting people. But after working at Columbia Sportswear, now I knew, I knew a lot of people because I, I'd interacted. And so it was a lot easier when I started the brand in 08 to go find professionals to help with the pieces. And one of them was a designer who just gotten laid off from Nike and she'd worked in the Jordan brand. And so she was a really, really accomplished designer. And I hired her to do my, my upper and that's what I have. So that was her creation before another big brand hired her. And so I was really fortunate. Again, that was one of the things of the, the 08 recession was that a lot of very talented people were now available, whereas in the 90s, there just weren't. Anybody who could do pattern engineering, last engineering, any of that, they worked for brands. And you really, it was really difficult to find. It's odd that companies let people go at those times, I think. I mean, I know that they don't know how long a recession is going to last for and stuff like that. But you see, like, I I don't know how many people that I've talked to that have Companies now, great profitable companies that are especially software companies in this yeah. area. And they're like, oh, yeah, I got laid off from Nike or I got laid off from Intel or whatever during the recession. And then they went and started a SaaS company yeah. and now they have a multi million dollar yeah. B2B software brand yeah. or something. And, and, you know, I think that's just the way it is. I've just kind of come to the conclusion that's just life. It's just the process. It's like you go to college, you get your degree and you move on and you, you start a career. And so some people get to be in a brand for a long time and good for them. That was something I'd hoped to have. But that hasn't been my road at all. And I felt bad for years because I kind of be here for two years and here for two years. And I used to think that that was a bad thing. But now I can see that all those different jobs that I've had have given me so many different skills that I wouldn't have gotten from working in one one company. Yeah, I was a contractor for years and I usually worked in kind of the information systems side of marketing organizations. So worked it. I kind of used to go back and forth. I'd go like Nike, Intel, Nike, Intel, because you could only be a contractor for a certain period right. of time. Then you had to have a break for like at least three to six right. months. Mm-hmm. So you just go work at the other one, right? Right. You just drive back and forth down the same street, one end or the other. There you go. Go to work. <laughs> uh, that works. So building a brand, following your passion, it's a lot harder than it may seem, right? Mm-hmm. People are say, find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, right. congratulations. Then you get to work, work twice as hard for the rest of your life. Yeah, but you can do it and it's something you love and you have a passion for. So if people wanted to find your shoe and find you and talk to you maybe about coaching or otherwise, how would they do that? Uh, Reshod.com, R-E-S-H-O-D.com. That's pretty easy. Yeah. Anything else that maybe we haven't asked you that you wanted to talk about today? Mm-hmm. We didn't talk much about coaching. I enjoy coaching. I, it gives me energy. I love, love, love the athletes I work with. They work very hard. Uh, most of my clients are corporate clients, but I do private coaching as well. I've also been president of a local race walk club for 10 years and enjoy that group too. When you say you do corporate coaching. So corporations would hire me. So Nike hired me in 2001. I worked for them 10 years out of their sports center. Columbia Sports were hired me too. And you're coaching their employees? I was coaching their employees. Okay. Yeah. And the same with Tektronics. I've been there 10 years. I'm going on 11. Nice. I have a contract with them to coach their Portland to Coast teams, which is what I did at Nike. And then same at Columbia Sports where it was a similar experience, but I don't think there were many Portland to Coast teams. 
They've yeah, done some relays. My wife just did the Portland to Coast relay last yeah. year. Yeah. It's far, isn't it? It's like 100, I don't, I 130 remember, 100 miles. And, yeah. yeah. So it's like 200 kilometers. Yeah, yeah I capped non American people. And I captained the winning team. Nice. Of that, we were overall winning team. You should coach our golf team. <laughs> <laughs> There's no hope Open for all golf teams. There's so yeah. fun story about our golf team. There's four, was four people right mm-hmm. on each team, and we lost three balls on the first shot of the first hole. Nice. Uh, three out of four went in the water. Well, and it just went downhill fast. Maybe they need some better shoes. I know. It could Probably have been that, or we should have started drinking sooner. Or that. One of the okay. two. One of the two. Uh, there's a lot of different things that could have gone wrong. I'm just blaming Matt, even though he's the only one who actually made it across the ravine. But anyway, so reshot.com, that's the best way to get a hold of yes. you. And they can get a hold of you for coaching and or to see and buy your shoes yes. and the products that you have. Yes. So Carmen, thank you so much for being here with us today. It was my pleasure. And we hope to see you grow in the future and would love to watch your progress. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. We'll see you guys next time. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt Rouse and Jeremy Markoff. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Now stay tuned for a preview of our next episode of Digital Marketing Masters. Join us next time as we talk about seven marketing technologies to watch in 2020. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.